It's a summer of diners. My parents have de facto separated, but only because complications from his bypass surgery have kept my father in the VA hospital in Fort Hamilton indefinitely. It's generally understood by everyone he'll die there someday. My mom now lives alone in our old house, and and each of us local kids regularly drives her out to Brooklyn for non-conjugal visits. Although, when it's Katie's turn, she walks my mom to the downstairs lobby, but doesn't go up. Instead, she sits in her car, the car with the bumper sticker, it's never okay to hit a child. And so, a chronically leaky heart valve and the GI Bill of Rights have combined to overrule the Church of Rome and do what my parents would never have done in their own, which is serenely live out their days under separate roofs. He's allowed out for quick jaunts, so about once a month I bring Ben and we fetch him for a trip to the diner. Actually, it's Ben's idea, since he can't get enough of Grandpa Tom. The meals usually give me agita, but if Ben wants to maintain relations with any of his paternal relatives, I'll make it happen. We swing into the winding driveway and see he's already waiting on a bench with other vets who clearly served in Korea, or maybe even the big one. He's wearing a Yankees 2000 World Champions cap, not because he cares about the fortunes of any given baseball team, but because he knows I'm a Mets fan and wants to give me yet another dig in a lifetime of giving me digs. And I'm not paranoid. The Bronx freaking Bombers won 27 World Series, but he only commemorates the one against the team from Flushing? In many of my key relationships, I could swear rule books were handed out I didn't receive. Most times, I don't even know the goals. I took the horn, and Ben lights up at the old man shuffling to the station wagon, dragging a large shopping bag. He sticks his head through the rear window and grabs Ben above his kneecap. Hey, Ishkabibble, he cries as Ben giggles. You're pulling my leg. As he settles into the death seat, I put out my hand, but he immediately chuckles. Still driving this piece of shit, huh? I look at my watch while they babble. Her name was Shiana Wilkins of Far Rockaway. And because of Shiana, my father was one of the most decorated men to ever serve in the New York City Fire Department an organization synonymous with uncommon bravery. It was a two-alarm that almost immediately became a four-alarm in the low-income projects along the waterfront. Four residents died, dozens were treated for smoke inhalation, and five different members of Engine 181 were recognized for gallantry above and beyond the call. But my father, well, his obituary will contain the name Shiana Wilkins. In 1987, Lieutenant Thomas J. Mullen was the sole recipient of the department's highest honor for valor, the James Gordon Bennett Medal. Shiana was only four years old, and her stepmother's charred corpse was later found in the bathtub. My father entered the apartment with three others, and all four were pushed out by a vicious pocket of roaring flame. He re-entered and was struck on the shoulder by a falling cabinet, that broke his left arm and sent him back into the hallway. Then he charged in a third time, clomping through three rooms before finding Shiana cowering in the kitchen, and using his unbroken arm, he carried her out through what the New York Times later termed 
a virtual wall of fire to what had been the living room. By then, he had second-degree burns on his arms and neck, and parts of his gear were melting onto his flesh. He carried Shiana to an emergency stairwell and up three more floors, despite additional burns received when they ascended onto the flaming roof. With one good arm, he lifted her to outstretched hands dangling from an overloaded NYPD helicopter, and then waited another agonizing 12 minutes for his own rescue from a roof that was quickly imploding. For years, my parents' bedroom was plastered with framed copies of the Daily News and the New York Post. Bravest saves Tot in Rockaway. Four dead, one rescued by F.D. Angel. Queen's Blaze hero. No big deal. Shiana Kin. Thanks, FDNY. Months later, Mayor Koch invited the Mullins to Gracie Mansion. My brother Tommy was in the Marine Corps, but the rest of us were dressed like Easter, and little Kevin wore a plastic FDNY hat in a snapshot that made the tabloids. For years, Katie and I laughed about it because you could see only the left arm of my leisure suit and her right leg in white tights. Ed Lord's bravest, finest. His honor, bravest of the brave. I was nine years old and tremendously proud that day. In fact, I remain tremendously proud today. Even though later I would feel somewhat lightheaded at the party in the Catholic War Veterans Hall when I heard my father and others from his engine company, still in dress uniforms but with ties loosened and shirts unbuttoned, refer to the Wilkins family in such odd terms. Words not even in use in the Northeast in the 1980s. Darky. Pickaninny. Cotton picker. At best, my father would refer to Shiana as the colored girl. And we all know whom he meant. Because of his injuries, he was placed on restricted duty after the hospital. So life for him became demarcated. Before the colored girl and after the colored girl. We're early birds, so the joint is fairly empty, and they give us a corner booth, which is terrific. These days I'm conscious of Ben causing a fuss, and I don't want him kicking someone's seat or flinging juice at unsuspecting Uber drivers. I get them both settled, wondering which of them requires more maintenance. The waitress leans in. Can I get you gentlemen a beer to start off with? Ben giggles, and my father laughs so hard you can see the gap from his missing tooth. He lost it falling down a fire escape when it separated from the wall of a burning bodega. Once again, I'm the odd and awkward and restless member of this trio, just like always. I may be in the middle chronologically, but with my father and son, I always feel not centered, but distant. The waitress tweaks Ben's chin and winks. He smiles shyly, never sure how to respond to the wisecracking heart of gold types. And she looks like she's balanced hot plates on her forearms since Ebbets Field was still open. How about a milk instead? Ben nods, and I order a Pepsi. My father does the same, even though I heard his doctor advising to cut out the sugar. But I'm not my father's keeper. I set up Ben with crayons and show him the connect-the-dots diagram on the kid's menu. Ben lights up, even though it's a basic, you know, R-O-Y-G-B-I-V box of only eight colors. We contrast purple and violet. 
My father watches us. I can still feel his gaze. And then pipes up, What's going on with the lawyers? I stare directly at him, raising my eyebrows, silently sending signals that aren't received. Let's talk later. Oh, we don't want to talk in front of him, right? I sigh. Looks like it's going to be a fire truck, I tell Ben. I think of the Nuthouse, the nickname for the engine company in Rockaway, where my father spent the most pleasurable hours of his life away from his family, and where he was decorated for conspicuous heroism on three separate occasions. Thrice, as they say. For the record, after 9-11, I was just as awed by the city's firefighters as millions of others were globally. Awed, but not surprised. In a country where heroism is cheapened and the mantle of hero is unjustly bestowed upon shortstops and people reading off teleprompters, the nation's collective subconscious was shocked by genuine selflessness. Simply put, most people run out of burning buildings, not into them. But then politicians and media conglomerates stepped in, and firefighters became très chic. A guy at my Archbishop McCarthy Memorial High School reunion told me that clear through 2002, he was still getting laid by different unknown women when he reported in Park Slope. So he started showing up on his off days. And not the usual Seagrave Annie's my father's crew cavorted with at picnics in Jacob Reese Park. These were marketing VPs and television producers and magazine fact-checkers, women with advanced degrees who read off Kindles in town cars, women who wear pantyhose to work, women who usually covered their ears and turned away when fire trucks raced by. It was a crazy time when families from Wyoming wore FDNY baseball caps in Disney World. Families that wouldn't set foot in Corona or Bed-Stuy unless sponsored by a reality show. At the height of it, Katie and I were sometimes heretics, committing treason by sarcasm and flirting with sacrilege by secretly mocking the newfound fans. Mocking the bravery or mocking the sacrifice or mocking the loss or mocking the widows and orphans? No, never, not once. Mocking the editorials and the talk show hosts babbling about men they'd never met and had no desire to meet. We had met them, and we knew them well, dozens and dozens, the fallen as well as survivors. We knew them as heroes, but some of them were flawed heroes, like my father. Thankfully, there's a new generation of men and women transforming the culture, bringing diversity where once it was stifled. I've seen it for myself with friends from the neighborhood in high school. My father's workforce is finally giving way, just as my father's parenting ways are as dead as the lame sitcoms and commercials that pretend dads still can't change a diaper. But Katie and I couldn't help recounting the FDNY parades we grew up attending in Broad Channel, the float with firemen in blackface eating oversized slices of watermelon, the gay wedding parody with a hairy-backed, 260-pound hook-and-ladder driver named Ralph wearing a white miniskirt. The Puerto Rican Day tribute that consisted of 23 firefighters all pretending to sleep on one king-sized mattress. The hanging of a dummy made to resemble Al Sharpton. 
Finally, my mother overheard Katie and me discussing Frankie Fratelli, a veteran fireman who escaped the North Tower. We recalled how he had once worn a four-foot-tall white Afro wig at a Christmas party while handing out gifts as David Dinkins, the city's first African-American mayor. Eileen blasted her two adult children as if we were Ben's age. We didn't bother defending ourselves. If studying meteorology taught me anything, it's that contradictions are a vital component in the workings of the universe. The waitress mistakenly thinks we're in no hurry, so I signal her. After I explain Ben wants applesauce and a side of peas and carrots and a plate of spaghetti completely dry, she mock argues with the boy. That's right. No butter, no sauce, no oil, no nothing, not even a dab of sauce, not even a dab. Ben shakes his head emphatically. I order a Western omelet with well-done home fries and a bagel. Ever since Iceland, I often eat breakfast at dinner time. My father wants chicken franchise with fries and buttered peas. Not exactly key components of a cardio patient's regimen, but he opts for the full dinner. Even though we're in a corner, I realize it's not very spacious. There's more booth than table, and it quickly fills up with ice waters, Pepsis, milk, my father's navy bean soup, sour pickles, coleslaw, ketchup, a large basket of rolls, butter, salad, and dressing. And now we learn what's in the large brown shopping bag. Hey, Charlie, I, I got something for you. The boy's eyes brighten as he crumbles crackers. What? You tell me, Mikey. He's Benji, I say. I'm Mikey. Hey, I thought you were Bachigaloop, he tells Ben. The bag is huge, and as he swings it toward Ben's corner, it hits my left ear and knocks one of the ice waters into the basket of bread. I jump up fast and throw napkins at the spill, but the old man's intent on delivering his package. Watch it, I snap. Let me get this. I hate that once again my temper is flaring. He ignores me and shoves the bag toward Ben who struggles with the transfer, but it's way too large and gives way, slamming into a salad dressing, which mercifully is capped, though it manages to knock over my Pepsi. Shit, I cry out. Once again, I pour at napkins, even as Ben allows the bag to collapse onto the seat beside him. The Pepsi sops across my half-eaten pickle, and I collect the soggy mess. A car! Ben cries. The sharp corners are digging into the bag at odd angles. Hold on, I yell at Ben. My son glances at me wide-eyed. Damn it, I mutter, throwing more napkins. Ben looks at me. It's brown. Okay, you can play with it later when we get home. The lower lip trembles, and I feel internal organs constrict. I want to see... Later. Now both eyes are filling. He glares at me. You're mean. My father chuckles. Your old man's a spoil sport. Get you go me. I contemplate chicken franchise dripping from my father's earlobes, but say nothing. I speak quietly. It's too big to open in here, buddy. My primary goal is to avert drama. I just want to see... I reach in 
and retrieve a large brown Hummer with wireless controls, allowing it to accelerate, reverse, turn, brake. The diagram indicating lights and horns makes it clear a power source is needed. Where'd you get this? I asked without looking up. He's working the navy beams. Eh, guy comes round once a week. Little Chinaman. He's got all kinds of crap. I flip to the side. Requires four sea-sized batteries. It needs batteries, I tell him. Did, did you bring any? He shakes his head, crumbling saltines. Now I notice the left tit on his golf shirt. Lava Dogs. The nickname of his old outfit, the 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines. A dig at my time in the Air Force, what he called the Wussy Branch. Daddy, needs batteries, buddy, but we don't have any. Ben starts crying. Get them, Daddy. You mean now? Before my omelet? As I speak, the swinging door opens, and I know instinctively those plates are ours. We can't get batteries now, buddy. After dinner. Ben lets out a wail and then slides Huggies first onto the floor beneath the table. No. Hey, the waitress says, plopping down plates. Wasn't that three of yous? My father laughs. Charlie took a dive. He's the wheelman. Went to fill up the tank. She knocks loudly on the soggy table, right beside my pale white home fries, and speaks even louder. Charlie, dry spaghetti going to waste. I feel stirring near my ankle. It abates, and the waitress departs. Then I hear it. I'm not Charlie, and my daddy is mean. I optimistically chop up Ben's spaghetti in case it can be salvaged, but it can't. My daddy is mean! I knock on the table from above. That's right, I spit out. I am mean. I go to diners without batteries. I'm the worst. I suck. There's no answer from the dirty floor, but my father responds while digging into the battered chicken. <laughs> Kids! I wolf down my omelet and vow, once again, this will be the last visit to Brooklyn, even though I know it won't be. Because of the leave for graduate school, money is suddenly a problem. I'm having trouble making the rent. When she was in grad school for five years, I worked full-time, so it was never critical. Now I've got NYU tuition, mediator's fees, attorney's fees. My dues are in arrears to the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, and the muffler is ready to drop clean off Lovey, our nickname for our tourist station wagon. Also, we had a joint savings account totaling almost $14,000, which I didn't think about during the first weeks she was back with her parents. Last month, I was shocked to find it now contains $23.52, and she defiantly asserted the withdrawal was rightfully hers. I was still hopeful of reconciliation, so I didn't escalate. What I don't know is that was yet one more mistake on my part. And suddenly, my life is altered forever. It's Independence Day, and I'm dropping off a sleeping Ben because we watched fireworks from my brother's roof. She answers the door, hands Ben to her father, and then steps out onto the stoop. We've got to talk she tells me. Again? 
A university liked her dissertation, which examined Jacques Derrida's repudiation of French age of consent laws. She's been offered a job, visiting professor, full-time, a one-year gig filling in for someone on sabbatical, in a state 15 hours away by car. Well, Ben will miss you, I say calmly, dumping tea into the harbor. She spends nearly four minutes explaining why Benjamin needs to live with his mother. I listen politely, then leave. And so it begins. We see more of the professionals than ever. Lots of visits. I finally accepted that my wife will never return. But accepting that Ben and I will be separated, that's not an option. It seems apparent to me, and most of those closest to me, that a child should never be separated from a parent he loves. So now, if I have to fight, I'll fight. I believe it's a rather straightforward argument, and I can't imagine a court would disagree with me. Ben should remain where he's happy. I'm out of work early and realize I don't know how to spend the time. It hits me how long it's been since I visited a bar by myself. Her, Ben, work. It's been years. There's heavy traffic, which may concern a flashing yellow amber alert for an abducted little girl. Funny how I never paid attention before. I pull off and head toward an old haunt, Bunratty's Still, in Glendale. The place is like Rockefeller Center. I may not desire to go ice skating, but to hear it had closed would be depressing. As I parked the wagon, I noticed the third green leaf on the neon shamrock burned out. The decor is petty larceny. That is, every wall is covered with stolen traffic signs from the old sod. Motorway, five kilometers. Directional signals in Gaelic. Red yield shapes with Gelslee in the center. Every barman, waitress, and regular customer who steps off Aer Lingus is required to bring another hot item. I belly up and order a draft harp. In Ireland, the law says you start drinking Guinness at age six, but I've had bad experiences with that black brew. If I want pot roast and gravy and mashed potatoes, I'll eat off a plate, thank you, not slurp out of a mug. The place is nearly deserted, just two old guys falling off their stools as the Mets and Yankees both grind out wins. Dennis plops down the harp, parks before me with one leg up, and leans in as though the mirror isn't lying and he's the customer and I'm the one tending bar. Marital problems, eh? He's from the other side of the pond, so I hesitate. Who knows what goes on there? They eat blood for breakfast, for Christ's sake. I wipe foam from my tongue, drinking's like riding a bike. Who told you? He snorts, shit, man, this is me living. What? What? I hold up my bare knuckles. The ring? Didn't notice. He rocks on one leg. It's you, boyo. Shit, haven't, what's it been, six years? Never seen your arse in here. He shakes his head. Marriage has killed more bars than liquor-licensed people every time. I take a bigger swig, showing I haven't lost a step. I've been in, now and again. Bullshit. 
Haven't seen you since... Oh, shit. My cousin Timmy's bachelor party, maybe 18 months ago. Well, la-dee-da, he says, in that way the Irish have of saying effeminate things without sounding effeminate. Used to work with a feller, you know, long-time barman, many years at the stick. He nods toward the, the keg handles. And Eddie used to say funerals are great for business, but weddings, hell, they're death, the death of good bars. I smile. Well, I'm back. Any chance of... No. No. That was that uh, red-headed Jewish girl you'll be divorcing. Well, she's Jewish, but that's not why we're divorcing. And no chance? Nope. Dennis finally smiles. Then you won't mind me saying, she had a great arse. Not now, I don't. Last year, I would have. The crowd erupts at City Field, but neither of us look. Then, he says, should find yourself a nice Irish girl. I channel Rito Marino and sing off-key, you know, one of your own kind, stick to your own kind. The nearest old guy pivots, and Dennis doesn't get the reference. Huh? A real swing and a miss, quoting Sondheim in a joint like this, and I'm out of shape. I've left this life. Look, even my mother stopped lighting candles. You know, for me finding some Sheila or Mary Patricia. And now you've got a kid. I push my empty mug at him, the most ancient of gestures. Now I've got a kid. He barely moves as his long arms reach over to refill the mug, yet his feet remain planted while capping off a perfect head. I've a kid as well. In County Cavan. County Cavan, I repeat, not knowing what to say. Dennis has been out for about 15 years, so there's no telling the last time he was a real father. At least, my idea of a real father. My kid's in County Queens, I say. She's trying to take him to Indiana. I don't know why. We both watch the game. It's mutual relief. You know, Micheline... Dennis finally says. Saw something interesting right in that toilet. I smile. Men's or ladies? Ah, oh, men's. Definitely the men's. He pauses so we can get it right. Just over the last urinal, down the end. And I was doing my business, and there it was. Joyce? Yates? Dennis seemed to speak to himself. She may be gorgeous says the wall. But just remember, somewhere, some other fella is already sick of her shit. I like to think, at some point, I'll have a comeback for this type of misogyny. For now, I just drink up. My attorney is kind, and I'm learning, far too slowly, that kindness is never a quality you want in a lawyer. I found Hillary through my union's employee assistance program at no cost, which just about summarizes it. At our first exploratory meeting, she professed to believe more in mediation, arbitration, or even reconciliation than in litigation. Stupidly, I hired her anyway. Now we're huddling and strategizing for our first court appearance. 
Hillary smiles too much when we discuss the new job in Evansville. After she asks me about the school's reputation, I run out of patience. Who cares? It's Indiana. She's taking Ben. We talk a lot, the debt clock ticking hourly, about motions and legal precedents and filings. I'm viewing all this as mere formality, checklists the court requires before ruling that Ben cannot leave Queens. I tell Hillary about my friend Dan from the Stewart Tower. He and his wife divorced and then bought houses next door to each other in Westchester, so their daughter is always home no matter which parent has custody. That's my goal, that Ben always has two parents nearby. But Hillary doesn't seem optimistic, and finally I ask her if there's something she hasn't revealed. My lawyer sighs and tells me of a recent ruling in New York State. If a working mother must relocate in order to provide for her child, then so be it. For several long seconds, I simply stare and blink. Finally, I speak. A working mother? What about a working father? She smiles without humor. Well, the courts, they tend to favor mothers overall. It's, well, it's just the reality. You need to know that going in. I feel myself continuously blinking and can't seem to stop. But what if the father is the better parent? That's what the court needs to decide, right? Hillary sighs again and quietly explains that the day I allowed her to take Ben to her parents' house was the day I de facto ceded custodial rights. Legally, I tacitly granted consent to my son not living with me. Now my brain itself seems to blink, but I breathe and, and regroup. But I, I didn't... Look, Mike, I'm just saying what the courts... But I didn't know. I didn't know they were leaving for good. I had to get to work. I was on my way out the door, late for my shift. She said they'd be at her mother's. I figured we'd talk that night, sort it out. What was I supposed... I mean, I thought we were just having an argument. I didn't know Ben was being taken. Hillary gently smiles and holds up her hand. One thing at a time. Let's write this all up so I can explain it to the court. Being given a task is an instant salve. I open my laptop and begin typing. We're moving forward. Soon, I'll have my day in court. For now and forever, I'll be the plaintiff and she'll be the defendant.